This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 155. Are you looking to draw a bigger box for yourself? I'm a huge fan of Seth Godin's, and I want to tell you about his Alt-MBA workshop. It's an intensive leadership and management workshop designed for changemakers who have a fire in the belly. This is for people who are itching to level up and make a bigger impact. Four times a year, the workshop brings together over 100 leaders, people from different industries and areas of expertise. The end result, you're surrounded by other leaders who are moving to the top of their respective fields and helping to support each other become stronger, cross-functional change agents. Every week you're meeting new people from the group. You're getting and giving feedback and seeing your blind spots in a whole new way. It's not about passively learning. It's about actively putting those concepts into practice until they become habit. The idea is to drink from the fire hose and rewire your brain to make new, better habits and have the platform to practice those habits. Over a 1,000 alumni have been through the Alt-MBA, and they include a mix of leaders, including product managers, lawyers, marketing directors, engineers, filmmakers, and more. The group is half freelancers, half folks at companies and startups like Tesla, Kickstarter, Charity Water, Microsoft, Nike, Kiva, Warby Parker, and more. If you're a leader and want to become even better, this is for you. There are no lectures, no videos. It's rolling up your sleeves and working in groups with people who are equally in it to win it. While most online courses barely approach a 7% completion rate, the Alt-MBA has an astonishing 96% completion rate. They are now accepting applications for their upcoming session. To find out more, visit altmba.com forward slash your kick-ass life and tell them I sent you. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. And today I am bringing you an episode that I have wanted to record for a few months now. And I really have felt, you know, I've put it off. I've actually canceled with Amy a few times and just really have not felt that I was ready to do this yet. And it being, uh, when we recorded this, it's about a little over seven months since my father passed away last October. And I felt like I was finally ready to tell the story and you'll hear why I wanted to do this episode. Uh, Amy kind of starts with that as we go through this and there's a very specific reason. And, uh, this isn't, this isn't an episode that's cleaned up. And what I mean by that is, is we've left it mostly unedited because I wanted this episode to be just a real conversation that I'm having with my best friend. And that's why. (laughs) So you might hear some long pauses and, um, not really that long, but just, you know, maybe a few more ums and ahs than you're used to. And please bear with us. It really, I wanted it to be not tied up with a pretty bow. And forewarning, there is some crying that goes on. So if you are someone who is highly sensitive to that and you tend to cry when you hear other people crying, you might want to listen to this when you're in a place where you can do that. So I've brought my very best friend, Amy Smith, along for the ride. Originally, I thought I would just do this episode solo and sort of tell the story about what happened with my dad and how grief has affected me and what it's like and all of those things and talking about grief in general. And I decided 
it's both helpful and an exercise in vulnerability for me to bring her on. So that's what I have done. And she is also someone who lost her dad about a decade ago. So you'll hear her story as well. And I think that's it. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn something from it. And yeah, without further ado, here is the conversation on grief that I had with my best friend, Amy. Hey, Goulet. Thanks for being here. Goulet, who's that? <laughs> Should we tell people? It just yeah. is so awkward to call you by your regular first name because you're my best friend. I know. We Just for everyone that doesn't know, we have nicknames for each other and we're so original that we gave each other the same nickname just so we won't get confused. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we... It's such a nod to how we first met and we ended up spending a day watching back-to-back Will Ferrell SNL episodes with like the best of Will Ferrell box set or whatever. And he, if you don't know, shame on you, but if you don't know, (laughs) he does an incredible impersonation of Robert Goulet. The singer. At the very beginning of our relationship started every single time we would call one another we would go Goulet, nature, Goulet, you know, and we just started referring to each other as Goulet to the point now where my husband doesn't call you Andrea. He calls you Goulet. He's like, well, have you asked Goulet about it? You know? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we might, you might hear us refer to each other during this conversation as Goulet because it's, it's going to really feel the conversation will be awkward for me. I mean, Amy, not so much probably because Amy lives to talk about hard stuff, but (laughs) I, on the other hand, have a harder time. And I just want to first say thanks so much for doing this. I mean, there was really only one person I would trust to do, to do this with me. And she she was busy. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course. I'm thrilled to be here. And I, I think that it's these sorts of things that we, you know, you, you see little posts about people going through hard times and stuff on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but we see that highlight reel, you know, we see kind of like the glamorous, beautiful pieces of grief and how awesome it is for people to come out of the, the woodworks and wish you well. And I think that there's this loneliness and reality of what happens in our real worlds that, that people don't talk about anymore and, or at all. And I think it's incredibly important. So I would love for you to just tell everybody what, why you even wanted to do this episode. Well, I, I kind of knew I wanted to do it as soon as everything started to fall apart because, because I have really started to live my life, excuse me, live my life out loud. And, you know, I started this years ago and it was sort of by accident. You know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, I was a writer and was sort of making up for lost time because I hadn't written in so long. And I just felt like I had this story inside me that I felt like I would die if I didn't tell anyone. And at that point when I was doing it, I wasn't telling the people that were really important to me, you know, like (laughs) what real vulnerability looks like. I just was putting it out there on a blog. And, and what came of that is that people said, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for putting what is so confusing for me into words. Thank you for showing that you can thrive and survive at the same time. Thank you for, you know, showing us what recovery can actually look like. And thank you for looking for, for showing that people struggle, even if the day on the outside at first glance can look like they have everything together. And 
when this happened, you know, I talked about all of my hard things. I've talked about divorce. I've talked about, you know, having a, a son with a diagnosis of autism. I've talked about my recovery from so many different things, bad breakups, et cetera. And this, you know, and if anyone's just, if anyone doesn't know, my, when my father died, I hadn't ever lost anyone that, that was, you know, important to me. And so I just, and when I would talk about it on Facebook, people would, I would get those same messages. Thank you for, for putting into words, feelings and emotions that are so confusing for me. And it's helped me so much. So kind of twofold, you know, I wanted to do that. And I wanted to just talk about, you know, just to make sure everyone knows that, that I, I still do struggle and things are still hard, even though I have all the tools and, and, you know, my dad first died, I I didn't employ them and it was, you know, messy and unruly and it's just how it looks. And yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, I think that these, these sorts of tales, these sorts of expressions of what life is really, really like, even when you seemingly have your shit together is, is so incredibly important to share with people so that they know they're not alone. And that I think what's really cool about us doing this together is I lost my father as well, but that was 10 years ago. And my grief today looks very different than yours. That is still within the first year, first couple of months. And I think that's also important to let people know that grief and sorrow and some of these expansive emotions that we feel on the most uncomfortable level of the human emotional spectrum is really vast. And there isn't one right way. And there's not like, oh, all you do is go to your toolbox and you'll be fine. I think there's, Mm -hmm. there's a misconception, I think, too, about personal development and that once you learn various tools to work with self-talk or belief systems or whatever it is that you won't have hardship. And that's not the case. You still have hardship. You just look at it through a different lens and you navigate it a little bit differently. So I'm curious, you know, for, for people who haven't really heard the story, you want to share a little bit about what that was like really losing, losing. Yeah. I'll probably, share more than a little bit. I'll, I'll go through, I think it's important to go through the whole story. And I, and I think it's both, you know, for people to hear and to pay tribute to my father and to, I think for me to kind of remember everything. And I think that there's also parts of it that you haven't heard because you were the first person I called that night he died, but you know, like as I, as I was telling my siblings about it and my mom and my husband and, you know, all these various people, you know, you start to forget like, what part did I tell you? And what part did I not tell you? So there might be things that you didn't even, that you didn't tell or that I didn't tell you. And well, I wonder, well, I'll kind of start in the middle. Cause I was thinking to myself, like, I wonder if I should say any backstory about it. And, and, and I won't. So I'll just start from when he, when he got sick. So geographically, my dad is still in San Diego or was still in San Diego, I should say, where I grew up. And we live in North Carolina. And we went, we were about to go on a vacation that was going to, we were going on a Disney cruise. So we were going to not have any um, contact with people out here. And my stepmom sent me a text and said, your dad's in the hospital. He has, um, he was severely anemic and has had some blood transfusions and they're doing tests and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And I was like, 
because should we not go? Like, how bad is it? And she said, no, go on your vacation. And when you come back, we'll, we'll probably be figuring out what's going on. So we came back. It was, it was an eight or nine day vacation. And then when we came back, that was the very, that was the very beginning of October. They, it was kind of, it was very strange. Like she had said, and I was also talking to my, my stepmother and, and her health wasn't the best at the time. And, um, my brother, he was near, he doesn't live that far from where my dad was. And so, he, so I was kind of talking to both of them and getting sort, bits and pieces from both of them. But what ended up happening is they said, it looks like he has, they, they suspected leukemia. That was before I left. And then when I got back, they said, yes, it's a rare form of leukemia. And I cannot remember the name of it, but it's, it was basically a form of, of, of blood cancer. And it's not even in the family of cancers, I guess, but it turns, it slowly turns your bone marrow into scar tissue and bone marrow is the part of your body that creates your red blood cells. And, and uh, that's why he was so anemic. And of course, I, I first thing I do is I went and Googled it. And what I found out was it's fatal, it's terminal. And that usually when people get diagnosed, they're dead within a year. That blood transfusions can help the person, but really it depends on their health when they got diagnosed. So if there's any other risk factors, that would depend. And the the doctors said he had, there was one doctor that said he has some months, which I don't know what the hell that means. And then there was another doctor that said he has six months, about six months. So I flew home. Wait, let me just stop you there really quick. So with, with the being on the vacation on the cruise Mm -hmm. and then doing this research, getting this information, what was happening for you emotionally, internally, were you shutting it down? Totally shutting it down. Okay. Yeah. I kind of felt like I had to, because I was going on this vacation that we had planned for a year. (laughs) It was a big deal. And so I was like, I felt like I can't like fall apart in front of my family. You know, like I, I had, I, I had a noble excuse to keep it together. And I honestly, like looking back, I can't remember. I think, I mean, I was, I was totally scared. Like, oh my God, you know, we very well might lose him. And so when, yeah, when I got back, I immediately flew to San Diego and I was there for four days, I think. And going into it, I didn't know how it was going to be. So I had lunch with my, had breakfast with one of my, my friends and, and drove over there to their house. And he looked pretty bad and, you know, he had lost a lot of weight and he was a little bit incoherent and he was having a hard time eating anything and didn't really want to eat, but he was, and we were, you know, helping him eat. And then, you know, I was, I was stayed with them, um, in their guest bedroom. And again, my, my stepmother's health wasn't that great. So I, I had to, I had to help out a lot <clears throat> and I'm not a nurse. I, um, oh, really? I have not at all. And, um, luckily I've had children, so I've dealt with really gross things before, <laughs> but it's a different story when it's your children and their children are babies and it's your ailing father. Yeah. And, um, that I was completely unprepared for that. 
in every way, in every possible way, completely unprepared. So when th- things were happening, like I had to go outside of myself and just com- go into like productive mode and just like get shit done, which I'm, I'm good at. And this has further proved to me, like I'm good in a, in a crisis because I can completely shut things down. And I think that comes, honestly, I think it comes from years of not feeling my feelings and just not dealing with it. So it's, it's come in handy in that way. And, um, so yeah, the first night that I was there, my stepmom woke me up around one and she said, your dad fell out of bed. And I was like, what? And she's like, can you help me get him back in the bed? And I'm just like, oh my God. So we had to do that. And then on the last day it happened again. And we had to call 911 because we couldn't get him back in. And basically what happened in the four days that I was there, his health declined in four days. And when I left, um, it was, I'll get to that in a second, but, but also what I found really interesting is I think this was maybe like the second day I was there and I was sitting with him on the edge of his bed and, and he was eating, I think I was, I was feeding him like oatmeal or something. And, and he took a bite and he sat there and he chewed and he swallowed and he said, what if you just don't want to do it anymore? Oh, and my stepmom was standing on the other side of the room by the door and we glanced at each other and I said, what do you mean, dad? What do you, what do you mean? What do you, what do you want to not want to do anymore? And <clears throat> I mean, I knew what he was talking about and he goes, and he like kind of waved his hand around and he goes like this, like all of this. And I said, like eat cereal or life. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he goes, what if you just want to go get on the bus and go to school? Oh. And I was like, what? And I said, dad, it's Saturday. And that's the good news. So there's no school today and tomorrow, but why don't we talk about it again on Monday? And he looks at me and he nods his head. He was like, okay. And, and my friend, Martha Atkins, she's, she's been on the podcast before. She wrote a book called signposts of the dying Mm. and I'll link to it in the show notes. And that's one of the things that they say, they, they use metaphors like that when people are dying and it's the belief that they know that they're on their way out and they're, they say things like that. Like my dad just wanted to get on a bus and just go and be done with it. He was, he was, he was done. And, um, you know, I think he was kind of done for a while. Like my brother had said, this was like that summer because I had, I had gone and I had spent some time with my brother in August, you know, just a short time before that happened. And, And we spent some time talking about our dad and we have different mothers. <clears throat> my brother's um, 18 years, my senior. So we didn't grow up together and but we were talking about him. And, and I asked him, I don't even remember what I asked him. I must've said like, what do you think? How do you think he is? How do you think he feels? And, and Nikki said, I think, I honestly think he wants to die. Yeah. And you know, my dad struggled with depression and I think that I think he was just really done. And so I'm not surprised at all. And I'm really grateful that it went so fast that he got sick and, and died so quickly. So he had also made a comment like that to my sister-in-law, my, my brother's wife. Um, they, they had come over when I wasn't there one day and she said that he was pointing in the corner of the room and he said, you see that path over there? Mm. And she was, I think she said, yeah, I see it. And 
And he's like, let's go over there. Let's go over to that path. So he was, he was doing things like that where we, I knew he was, I think there were some other people in my family who were not, um, who were still in some denial and, and I knew he was ready. And so I was there for four days. It was brutal. It was excruciating. And when I left on that fourth day on that morning and my Uber driver was, uh, was coming. And so I was going to wait outside and I had, I had forgotten my phone charger. So I ran back in the, the house to, to get it. And the way that their master bedroom was, it was these double doors that were right, right next to the, um, kind of perpendicular to the front door. So as I'm going back out the front door, he was like propped up in bed and it was, it was kind of a rare, very lucid moment for him. And, and I looked at him and I, and I, and he waved at me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's probably it. Like either I'm not ever going to see him again, or if I see him, it's, it's not going to be like this. And there was like this part of me that felt like, like I was little again, you know, and I'm just like, bye dad. And, he, and just the way he smiled at me too was, was really calm. And I don't, I don't know if that's like what I want to remember or what I really saw, but it was, it was a moment that I will never forget. And it was just a second. So I'm so glad that I, I ran back in and got to, to wave to him and see him because yeah. I had told, I had told the hospice people that to call me, you know, when they thought it was time. And then the few days after that, I was home for not even a week. And it was like this back and forth. And it was, without going into detail, it was a little bit of a shit show with family members and like, should he go to hospice? Should he die at home? You know, dealing with all of that decisions and, you know, and, and it's hard when, when you're the, when you're the the child of an, uh, you're, you're an adult child of someone where you don't, when you're not making the decisions. Right. It was hard. And, um, and a lot of people involved and a lot of cooks in the kitchen and, and people having different opinions. And, and, and that's, this is where I realized the term emotions are running high comes from because that was it. And I, I, I turned around and came back and, and I really struggled with the decision to come back because the hospice called and said, if you want to be here when he dies, you should probably come back. Right. And, but then again, they don't know. They, they've seen, they've said, they, they said, like, you know, we've seen people pull through and live for weeks longer where your dad's at. We've seen people die very quickly. And she said, it really depends on how fast his declining has been. And I told her, I said, he declined in four days when I was there and I had just seen him in, um, in June. And then my sister had been with him on his birthday, July 30th and taken a picture and sent it to me. And he was totally and completely normal. That was the very end of July. And there we were just in the beginning of October. And so the, the decline was super fast. So I knew he was going, I went back and forth with going home because there was a part of me that was so terrified to stare at his mortality, like literally stare at him and watch him die. I thought I'm, I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. Like I was, I was in that selfish place of, I cannot bear that pain of seeing my daddy slip away from me. This man who was my everything, who was my hero, who was, you know, the strongest man I knew. And, um, yeah. then it was actually my husband who, you know, so I was crying. I'm like, I don't know if I should go back. And, you know, this person thinks I shouldn't go back. And, and Jason said, I can't imagine you not going like you have to go. And, and so I 
was on a plane, I think the next morning going, you know, again to the other coast. And, um, at that point he was in a hospice facility that was, that was beautiful in Carlsbad in California. And when I got there, he was, uh, he was incoherent and he, if anyone has ever heard what is called the death rattle, mm. it's the raspy breathing, um, of someone who was dying and it was shocking, but again, it was, I was able to, you know, keep it together. And, um, and then one of my friends or one of my dad's really good friends, one of his lifelong friends came to see him and I hadn't seen him in a really long time. So that was, that was neat. And he made my dad, he said something funny and, and my dad kind of like moved around a little bit and, but he, my dad could not speak. He could barely open his eyes and, um, it, it was excruciating. And then, you know, we just had to like wait with him and it was strange because, you know, there I was just like having small talk with my stepmom and figuring out what we were going to do for dinner. And, and, and I had asked the nurse, the hospice nurses and God bless hospice nurses. Like, right. <laughs> I mean, they were just incredible. And, and I asked her, I said, honestly, how much time do you think? And she said, I'd be surprised if he made it through the night. Yeah. And, um, I'd be even more surprised if he was here tomorrow. So I knew, and the plan was that I was going to spend the night there and my stepmom, because of her health, um, was going to go back home to their town home. And, and, you know, my siblings, my brother and sister had decided that they didn't want to be there. And that was, that was tough to come to terms with because, you know, everyone has their own experience and everyone has their own reasons for behaving the way that they do. And it was, it, anyway, I'll talk about like all the different feelings, but it, it, it was really a lesson in um, having to let things go right. that, you know, it, it's, it's surrender. It's like surrendering to what other people want to do and how other people are feeling and, and how their experiences. And it's, and, and it's, again, it was such a, it was a, I don't know if this is the right word, but it felt like volatile, just all of it. And my stepmother left at... 8:30 p.m. and she left and I turned the bedside lamp off and basically it was like this really beautiful house that they had turned the bedrooms into hospice rooms so they were like these bedrooms and they had their own bathroom and um she I turned the bedside light off and I had the TV on and so that was the only light in the room and um I just sat right next to him with like my kind of arm over his head and um put Bob Dylan on and on my phone and, and, um, mm. and just talked to him and just told him all the things I wanted to tell him and, and told him, you know, my favorite childhood memories and, and thanked him for everything. And, and I can't remember if I told him that, that I was, I think I did. I think I told him I was sorry for anything that I did mm. that it, yeah. you know, that had hurt him and, and all these things that, that, you know, that I didn't know that I never got the chance to talk to him about because he and I both really struggled with just, you know, having those hard conversations. And I think he struggled more than I did. And and I just I didn't know what else to do. And it's like no one prepares you for this. Like, what do you what do you do when when you're there alone in the room with your dad? 
and he's dying right in front of you. And, and I just, I just did the best I could. And I just talked to him and just stayed with him. And, and then, um, I think his breathing got, got heavier and then it stopped and I panicked because looking back, I mean, obviously that's what's going to happen. And, you know, and, and I, and I, I, I was just like, Andrea, why didn't you just like sit there with him and like while he passed? But I, I totally panicked and I like pressed the nurse's button for them to come in. And I think that there was a part of me that was like, okay, it's time to resuscitate him. You know, like somebody do something because he's, he's, I can't hear him breathing anymore. And they came in and there was this one particular nurse that was kind of annoying. <laughs> Poor thing. Like she, she just was really talkative and you know in that moment the day that my dad died when i knew he was going to die that day it was like if you weren't the most perfect human being on the planet you were fucking annoying me and yeah. <laughs> and she just she just talked too much and she was just friendly and so she walked in the door and i was like oh god like you are the last person i want to see right now and then the other nurse came behind her and, um, the one that was annoying me, she stood next to me and she goes, it's okay. It's okay. And I said, you know what? It's not okay. It's not okay at all right here in this moment. It's not. So please don't say that to me. And then the other nurse looked at her like zip it. And she came around to the other side and, you know, she had her stethoscope and it was quiet for a few moments. And she said, he actually hasn't passed. And I'm like, oh my God. The last thing my dad is hearing is me bitching out this nurse. Like, that's <laughs> great. <laughs> and then, um, and then it was quiet for another couple minutes. And then she said, 905. Mm. And I knew what she meant. And I looked at my phone and I said, actually, it's 902. And that was it. And then she said, okay. Um, the next thing that we do is we clean the body up and we call the morgue, but you're welcome to stay here as long as you want with him until you're ready for us to do that. And I was like, what do I, what do I do? Like I wanted, I needed somebody else to make the decision for me. Like I felt like I, where's the grownups because I'm not. Like I felt like a child, like this is a very grown up situation, one that I am not equipped for, nor am I prepared for, nor have I ever experienced. And somebody help me, like, where are you guys? And I I just said, okay, I guess I'll call you when, when I'm ready. And she, they left and she says, do you want me to close the door? And I was like, it felt like the hardest decision I must have paused for like a full 15 seconds. And I was like, I don't know. Um, I, all I know is that I didn't want to be there with my dead dad. Like I, I wanted him to not be dead at all. And like, and I just, and she left and I just like paced the room and, and I, and I'm just like, I, it felt like an out of body experience. Like, what do I do right now? And I, couldn't, I mean, he was kind of on his side and I couldn't, um, be on that side. And so I went around to the other side of the bed and where he was kind of, his back was to me. And I just put my head down on the bed and I just cried and, and held on to him. And I don't know how long I was there. Um, I mean, I was just like, I was just 
so much, just so much. And I was so fucking pissed off at my siblings and just everyone for not being there. But like at the end of the day, I probably wouldn't have wanted him there anyway. Like I would have wanted it my way. Like I want like in the perfect world, like, okay, I want you guys here, but can you stand in the background? And if I snap my fingers that, you know, it's like ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. And so I wonder still seven months later, like was, was that meant, was it meant to be that way? And my brother even said the next day when I was telling him everything and he said, I'm glad you were there with him because you were his greatest joy. And, you know, and I think that my dad loved us differently and, you know, I was his last child and I just, it it, it was just excruciating. And so, yeah, then they came and, um, cleaned him up and, and then, you know, I came back in to see him and, and he had like a rose in his, um, yeah, they had kind of folded his hands over his, chest and there was a rose there and it didn't look like him you know it's like it it's not the man that I remembered he had really withered away so quickly and it was just he had just gotten so sick so quickly and it just broke my heart to see him like that and just to lose his dignity at the end and and it's just he would have never wanted that and and I don't know maybe that's why he went so fast and and then what happened? And then I didn't know, I didn't have any place to go. And I had to like, cause I was going to spend the night there. And so I, I called my friend Shelby, who's been a, a long time friend of mine who doesn't, doesn't live far from there. She called me back and I went and spent the night with her. And, um, and then ended up spending two weeks there cause his funeral was for another two weeks. And, um, and I, you know, I wrote the eulogy and, and spoke at his service and yeah. And here I am seven months later. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Thank you for sharing that so candidly and openly. I think it's so important for people to, to hear what the actual play by play looks like. Like we, I remember telling you after, you know, a few weeks had passed that I really think there's this thing that happens, at least it was my experience where there's this period of time where people are really compassionate about what went on with you. And then the time's up and they expect you to be back to work, back to getting things done. And you're kind of, there's this expectation. I mean, even with bereavement, you get three days a week, whatever. And it's like, Oh yeah, I'll be, I'll have my grief wrapped up by then. Mm -hmm. And and it permeates your entire life. It's not, it's not over after a service. Like it can certainly have an element of closure, but you know, and especially with, for you going through something of this magnitude, being sober, like not having a vice necessarily to turn to or to numb. And you know, what has that been like for you? Well, it's been, it's been hard and easy. Um, I think, but mostly hard. I feel like, so it's not so much that I want to drink over that. There has been a couple of moments, but I feel like it's because of that. Everything else in my life feels harder. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like it's made me naked and raw and tender, like tenderer than I already was. Like now I'm like ultra tender. So everything feels like it hurts more. And I think that it, it, it's just sort of like exacerbated things, if that makes any sense. And I just, in the way I describe it too, I feel like it's this constant background music playing that, 
you know, like it's, it's, um, this sort of fog that is, that is in the air. And sometimes it's, it's worse than others. And, and it creeps in at really odd times. And when I'm not expecting it and when I am expecting it, it it usually doesn't. And that's, I think when, when I think about drinking, I think about drinking when I am just tired of it. Like I want to just, I want to take a vacation from it for just like a couple of hours. And when I was drinking, that's what, that's the relief that I had. Unfortunately, it, it was not that easy. It was not that simple. It was much more complicated. And so, um, that's why I can't go down that path. But, um, yeah, I did a whole, I did a whole, um, recovery episode about that. I'll link it in the show notes just about where I go into more detail about that and like how I stayed, how I've stayed sober through his death. But, um, it has not been super easy. <laughs> I'll tell you that, but I've managed. Right. Oh my gosh. It's it. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, like what you were saying with you, you tend to revert back to being a child. And totally. I, you know, I think about watching my parents mourn the loss of their parents and they seemed like such adults, you know, like old, like, why are you crying? You don't need parents anymore. Right. You know, I remember thinking that, like, why are you crying so much about losing your parents? Like they're, I always thought it's warranted if someone's taking care of you. Like, of yeah. course that's devastating, but it's that kind of stuff that you, you don't realize as a child. And then you go through this really earth shattering event and you immediately revert back to being a child, or at least it, that can be a really common response to it. And yeah, yeah. I felt like I, I, I wrote about that too. And how the moment he died, looking back on it, like it, it was sort of like I left my body, but there was this little girl part of me that sort of like slipped off into the corner and put her hands over her head and started screaming because it just the the terror of it and just the, the part of me that couldn't bear it you know it's like there because I think that we all have that like when stuff like this happens you know we 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 deal with it because we are at the end of the day resilient and and strong human beings and we were we were meant we were born for things like this but right. that's still there's like this part of me that cannot bear it and like that's I think the part that that heals and I don't know how I'm able to compartmentalize it, but I, but I do. It's, it, it's, it's this, this child part of me that, cause he and I, and I know that this isn't everyone's experience with their father, but we, he and I were very close when I was little and I was, I grew up by myself. My siblings were, were older and, and didn't live with us. And, um, he was my everything. Like he was absolutely my everything. And, and, and he was just a, he was kind and sweet and he never, he was not the disciplinary. My mom was. And if I ever needed anybody to, um, to say yes and just like, he just was that soft place to land when I was little. And, yeah. um, you know, and then things changed when I grew up and I, you know, I, <laughs> I often half joke like, oh, I made the mistake of growing up. And that's why we, grew apart. My dad didn't know how to talk to me when I grew out of being a little girl and, and became a more complex young woman. And, um, and you know, and I have feelings around that too. And just, it all sort of like exploded 
and got kicked up when he died. And it, I kind of all knew it was there, but I conveniently like, I'll deal with that later. Like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of classic daddy issues, but, um, it, it really exploded in my face when he died. And I think partly because now we can't fix it. It, right. it's, it's done. And that is, that is really hard to grapple with. And, and I know that it's on me and I, and I knew it even when he was still alive and he was fine, you know, and I would have the, and I would think about that. Like, should I have this conversation with him? And that was a part of me that was just like, I couldn't, I mean, I had a hard enough time, like dealing with my own stuff and, and, and I'm like, can I bear to go down that path with him and and possibly hear about his pain because it just i mean you know people listening probably know like to hear about your parents pain and to see your parents hearts break in front of you is excruciating and like i that scared me to death and so that's why i avoided a lot of hard conversations with him and i know that he, it was a mutual thing between the two of us and, um, and he died and that was it. And, and it gets coming to terms with that too. Yeah. Well, it's in, you know, when we talked about doing this podcast, you know, I had, and we had talked about doing this a couple months ago and I didn't want to. And, and I, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if, you know, just really lovingly, are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. And, you know, it, a lot of times in, in coaching, we, we talk about it being of integrity for us to share about stuff after we've kind of come out the other side, because if somebody is, you know, highly offended or ridicules you, it can be very, very hard to deal with. But this particular situation and I think you feel the same way. Obviously that's why we're here is that it's important for people to know that it's not tidy, you know, right. even seven months out, you don't, it's not an effortless thing to talk about. You, you're never really over it. It's something that you have to kind of battle the rest of your life. It is a different relationship with that person. So I think it's important for you to, to share this and, and show your vulnerability so beautifully with everybody about what your experience is like and to know that you're still grappling with stuff. Like you're still unpacking, like how was I as a teenager and what are the things that I wish I would have said? And how do I forgive myself for those things? How do I take what is and continue to move forward? And it's not done yet. It's not mm -hmm. tidy. It's a mess. And I think it's important for people to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I know that everyone's experience is, is different and I'm, and I'm not sitting here saying everyone needs to go out and have the hard conversations with their parents now because I never got to. I don't know. I, I don't know if everyone should. I just, I think that, I don't know. Like, do you think that everybody kind of have regrets? Cause I don't think that you had the same experience. Like, I think that you've said that you don't have any regrets with your dad when he died. Yeah, I, re I really don't. Um, but, you know, as we've talked about many times, like, <laughs> you're always like, well, if there's a problem, Amy will say something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, and I've kind of been like that my entire life. I, it, you know, my situation was very different. Um, I'm happy to share the story if you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
there was a lot of similarities in the sense that I was able to be there with him. So, you know, just a little a small backstory. My father in the fifties had contracted polio. And if you don't know much about polio, it, it affects your muscular system. So typically one side of your body it, and it's asymmetrical. So one side of your body will develop normal musculature and the other side will be severely weakened. So what that means usually for your spine is very severe scoliosis. And he, he had just the most brilliant mother and his sister was six years old and had contracted polio, which as you know, was like a pretty huge rampant Mm -hmm. disease happening in the fifties. And she had contracted it. And then my dad was an infant and he contracted it from her because it was highly contagious. She ended up passing away and I I still can't wrap my head around the strength that my grandmother had to bury a six-year-old and then to have a son who also had the same disease, who was an infant and have to try to mourn and then regroup and deal with another ailing child. Obviously my father survived, but if you know very many people, or if you've seen anyone who survived polio, oftentimes because of the musculature issue, they have to walk with some sort of assistance, whether it's a wheelchair or arm braces. But my grandmother knew that the only chance of him actually walking unassisted was to stretch him and do these really rigorous stretches three times a day. Wow. And so she said she had to, we got an amazing interview with her a few years ago talking about it on, we got it on, on tape. And she had said, I really had to decipher between when he was screaming out of childhood defiance. Like, I just don't want to do this. And when he was screaming out of pain, like that, the pain was too intense. And it is because of that diligence that he was able to walk unassisted in his adult life. He had one leg that was longer than the other. So every single set of shoes had to have one side built up considerably higher. But he, because he looked so odd in stature, like he, it was clear that he wasn't a little person, but you couldn't quite tell what was wrong. He had a very barreled chest, long legs, but he was short. He was barely five feet. And so because he looked very odd in stature, he would, he developed a very sharp tongue as his defense. And his three older brothers always had to kind of back him up (laughs) because he would kind of run his mouth. Well, he then filtered that into his life's work and ended up, you know, being a public speaker. And he was very involved with, I mean, he got a master's in divinity, a doctorate in ministry, ended up, if you know much about me, you know that I grew up in a very conservative Christian family. And so my dad ended up giving his entire life over to his faith and his work. And it always just amazed me that that sharp tongue became useful as to help people really change their lives. So he was in a situation where because of being afflicted with polio in the 50s, his, he, he, in his, in essence, he was folding in half. So his spine, it's almost like if you can picture like arching your back severely, your, his spine was meeting his rib cage. So he was quite literally folding in half. And because the spine was meeting the rib cage, it was crushing his lung function. So the doctors told us, okay, if, and he was 58, mind you, mm-hmm. they said, if, we don't do anything. What you're looking at is gradual suffocation over five to six years. 
that you, you, you basically are just going to snuff yourself out, which is egregious. Can you imagine? Wow, that I mean, sounds horrible. And he even at that point had said if his stomach was full, like if he could eat food and fill up his stomach, it was easier on his breath because it was expanding the distance between his spine and his rib cage. So we knew that something needed to get better, you know, needed to happen. So he, he, the surgery that they needed to do was basically to go in and arrest his spine from bending any further. And it would, they would straighten it out slightly, adding maybe like two inches of height. But the main purpose was to put a rod in there so that he would not continue folding in half. The type of surgery was extremely involved. You needed a real expert. My parents researched forever. They found a doctor who could actually go through the side of the body instead of cracking the sternum, which is what the typical way to address the surgery, which inevitably would mean about a year long recovery. They had a chairlift installed in their house. You know, they really prepared. He was on calcium supplements for an entire year, trying to build his bone structure. He, they really, really did their, their due diligence and their, their prep. So we thought, okay, he, this is going to be like everything else that he has overcome in his life, being told he would never walk. And he did being told he would never be able to run or walk unassisted, you know, all of that stuff that he had come through, created this incredible career for himself. And we thought, okay, here's just another thing, you know, another obstacle that he is going to sail through. So it was in May. Uh, we actually just, I guess, I don't know if I would say celebrated, but hit the 10 year mark this May of his passing. So it was May 14th. He went in for this surgery and it was going to be about, gosh, it was like 12 hours, 12, 14 hours. And I didn't we, know it was right before your birthday. Oh yeah. It was, yeah, it was right before my birthday. My birthday is the 15th. He went in on the 14th and came out of it. And we were really nervous because it had taken a good 14 hours and we knew it was intense and it was crazy. So the, they fight, you know, they came out, they said, he's fine over the course of the next four days. It was hit and miss. It was like one lung would collapse and then they would inflate it. And then the next lung would collapse. And then, so the idea was to gradually wean him off of the respirator so that he would be self-sufficient and the exact opposite happened. So instead of his body being able to acclimate to more room for his lungs, it it, it couldn't, it basically could not handle what was happening. And so he became a hundred percent dependent on the respirator. And so we got to a point where we were like, holy shit. I mean, I even went back to work. I was working in cosmetics at the time and I even went back to work one day and was kind of a mess. And they were like, go home. I remember on, it was May 19th. I was out in LA. And so it was this hospital, uh, about an hour away from us. And I was all into the secret, right? And so I'm thinking law of attraction, manifestation, like just think positive and it'll all work out and he'll be fine. And, you know, things are going to be great. And that day we, we had kind of talked to the doctor and we had said, is there a decision that we need to make? You know, because my, my dad had told us I'm prepared to live and I'm prepared to die. I'm just don't want to be anything in between. He didn't want to be a vegetable. He didn't want to have to be, you know, mm -hmm. incapacitated in any way like that. And 
you know, I had even asked him like, dad, are you, are you afraid? Are you afraid to die? And he said, I suppose if my my purpose, my only purpose was to live this life here on earth, then yeah, I suppose I would be afraid. And I was like, fucking a dad, like with your, with your fucking face, which was, of course I didn't say that to him, but just, he was such an incredibly brilliant human in that regard. Just, he was very much prepared to go. If that was the case, he had lived an incredible life, even though it was short. And so it eventually we got to the point where we had asked the doctor, do we need to make a choice? Do we need to make a decision? And he said, he said, no, we're not quite at that place yet. And then there was a code blue and, you know, there's all the sirens going and it's just this heart palpitating. And you're like, my mom goes, that's your dad. That's your dad. That's your dad. You know, let's pray. Let's pray. And like, we all gathered together. And obviously I was still grappling with my spirituality. I wasn't quite on board with the prayer, but, um, you know, but it was emotions running high and all of that. And so all of us are praying and coming together and, And so we had asked again, do we need to make a choice? And the doctor said, well, we've, we've kind of taken that off your shoulders. You will, will kind of know within an hour, either he will miraculously respond to the medicine that we've given him, or he will gradually flatline. That's what we're looking at within the next hour. So very similar to you, we sat in the room it was myself, my mom and my two brothers and my husband was on his way. He wasn't able to be there. And we, the latter happened and we just eventually watched him flatline. And it was that, that whole like beep, 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 you know, and then it mm-hmm. slowly, and then it's like, beep, you know, and that sound, I just wailed. I mean, you know me, I'm pretty unbridled when it comes to emotion anyway. And I was just like, "Ah!" you know, just like let it all out and just like scream cried basically. And I remembered in that moment thinking that this is what people are talking about when they describe birth and they describe the miracle of witnessing a soul enter the world. This is the opposite end of that. This is witnessing a soul leave this plane of existence. No wonder when people talk about birth, they talk about it being like something you can't describe. Yeah. Right. It's spiritual. And so even though this was the opposite end of human emotion and it was literally like the depths of despair, it was also profound and magical for me. It was so rich because it was intimacy I mean, it was so, I mean, to watch a soul leave, like, fuck me. Right. And I knew in that moment that I had, I had a couple of choices. Like I could either, I could go into a place of why me, why him, or I could go into a place of what was I meant to learn through this? What was I meant to experience here? And I, I felt very strongly that it was meant to teach me gratitude. You know, I had lived the better part of my life with little to no massive hardship. I was there with him. It wasn't like somebody called and said, are you sitting down? There's been an accident. You know, I, he officiated the wedding of my husband and I, we, I I didn't feel like there was anything that I hadn't said to him. The place where I did go into a bit of, a disassociation. I, I did his makeup for his viewing and I wanted my husband to come with me. So if you don't know, I have a makeup artistry background. So I called some of my friends who had done makeup for some other 
coworkers of ours who had passed on. And I just said, okay, I know the skin is different and all of those things. And I felt convicted from the very beginning. Like I have to do his makeup. There's no way I'm going to let some rando come and do his makeup when I'm completely skilled at this. (laughs) Right. So I, I had asked my husband to come with me, um, through a long story that I, I don't need to tell. He, it was a decent amount of time afterwards. So it was about a week, a week and a half afterwards. So I didn't know if he was going to be really green or what I was going to be looking at physically. I had talked to some people about helping me prep for that. Like, what do I need to know? Explain to me, whatever. My husband came with me. And the first thing I said, because I didn't know, like, am I going to come unglued? Am I going to fall to my knees? Like, what am I going to, you know, how am I going to behave? And the first thing I said, I mean, I immediately went into business mode and I was like, oh, his coloring is not nearly as green as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> something I would do. <laughs> and that, that was where I kind of went into a different mode. And, it, it, you know, with the embalming process and it, it really doesn't look like them at all. I know that it's an element of closure for a lot of like our other relatives who weren't around him. But for me, I felt like this was very much a vessel. It was not him. And, and so that was still to this day, one of the most amazing things. And I'm so glad that I, I went through with that. And, you know, some of like, some of our friends were like, are you sure? Like they really, and I was determined, like, fuck no, I'm doing this. Don't even, don't even step to me right now. Yeah. Uh, and then both myself and my brother were able to speak at the service and it was extremely cathartic. But then I've also had this really incredible, I think you've had a bit of it as well. I feel like I've had the great fortune to have some conversations with him beyond the grave where I do feel like we're connected spiritually. And that was a tremendous amount of relief for me, which I'm I'm not going to get into that, you know, intensely, but there, there are still times like my father would, I don't know if it's an East coast thing or what, but instead of calling his office, his office, he always called it the study. And this was not too long ago. I was listening to a podcast or something like that. And somebody referred to their office as a study. And I just instantly bawled my eyes out. And we're we're talking like nine years post. Mm -hmm. And it just sideswiped me. And I just, it was like throwing up, like, you know, just completely came out with it. Yeah. And you just kind of, and it still hits you and it's still a piece of you and it's still a part of it. And And I think what I did, my perspective and my brothers took a very different route. I felt like I need to plow right through this. I need to look this grief in the motherfucking face and I need to be with it. So for a week, I didn't stop crying. I would be checking out, getting groceries and just, here's my change. (laughs) Like, I didn't give a shit if anybody was uncomfortable, pumping my gas, just crying, bawling my eyes out. I just let myself feel. And I, I really think very strongly that that was a piece of me healing much faster than like, say one brother kind of threw himself into drinking. Another brother just shut down, completely shut down. And he started dealing with it like five years later. So I think we all have our own approaches and I don't think there's any right or wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, about honoring your own journey and not comparing it to what other people feel. And then knowing that you cannot control it, you know, like, you can't. Oh, I know. And that that's been 
you know, I was, I was telling in my last podcast episode I, I did with Kate, our friend Kate Anthony, and I was talking about surrender. And I said, there are two times in my life where I have, I've struggled the most with surrender and that's giving birth and grief yeah. because it really, and I have tried my heart, like I get an A plus for effort with trying yeah. to control everything in my life and most people, in fact. Yep. And, and this thing has just really taken me to school. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how I wonder too, if, I don't know, you know, and since I've met you, like, I wonder if there are some people who are just born more resilient than others and how, you know, like, I don't know if it's a sensitivity gene or what, because I think you're sensitive too, but I think that you just are like, you, you, you take these kinds of things with open arms. Whereas mm -hmm. most people that I know myself included, not most people, I would say a lot of people are just like, I don't, it's just not that we're closed off so much. It's just like really like awkward arms, you know, like, Yeah, <laughs> that's more way it feels for me. Like, I don't know we what know to what do. I know. I, I, I think what it is, it's around emotional agility. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even want to say emotional intelligence because I don't think it's about intellect. I think it's about your ability to be with emotions all across the board. And yeah. I've been like that since a little girl. And I don't know if it was like, you know, the story, my, my dad would say, show me excited. And I would do an excited face, show me scared. And I would do scared. And so I was very fostered to embrace my emotions, no matter what it was. expressive. If mm -hmm. I was real, you know, and same, you know, you've shared plenty of times, like if you're sad, you go and do that in your room. You don't show that to anybody. My parents were like, what's going on? What are you feeling? Talk to me. So, you know, my issues ended up being far more about like religion and dogma and things like that. But emotional stuff, mm -hmm. I felt like, oh no, if you, if you feel something, you just fucking feel it. My mom would always say, you don't have to wonder what Amy's thinking, you know, and it was never negative. It was a positive thing. So I think how you are taught to emote the messages you receive around emoting is, is huge to how you handle grief. Yeah. And I do think, I think emotional agility is, can be learned. I don't think that you either are, or you are, and that's it. Like, you know, your that's eye right. color. And I think for me, and I've talked about this before, I think that, you know, being an addict, I think that I, I started, I shut down as a teenager and I finally came out of it, you know, when I got sober and it's been a learning process for the last almost six years. And so I feel a little bit, you know, in some ways, like, but the big stuff, like a, you know, like a teenager, just like trying to figure it all out. And I wanted to, to circle back to about, you know, I have a, I have a friend who lost her dad three weeks before mine. And she and I have had long conversations about grief and what it's looking like and, and things like that. And she asked me, cause we were talking about um, which we were talking about the whole concept of like visits and things like that. Yeah. And, um, I've had a couple and she asked me this question. She said, what do you, I think she said, where do you think he is? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. And I don't think I want to know because for me, I I'm like, I felt an immense amount of pressure, like, 
is he trying to tell me something that he couldn't tell me when he was here? Like, Mm -hmm. is there some kind of message I need to be hearing? And oh my God, am I getting it wrong? And do I, you know, it's like, I've asked like the first couple of months, I was drowning in those questions, drowning in them. Like, where are you? Were you trying to tell me something at the end? Did I do it right? Did I say the right things in those last 30 minutes when it was just you and me alone? Did I play the right Bob Dylan songs? Did you know, like, was I, was I thinking at the end of the day, it was like, was I a good enough daughter? And like that question just Ugh, like ripped my heart out and threw it on the ground. Like I, I couldn't stop asking myself that question. And I finally had to get to a point where it was like, I had to forgive myself for things that I had made up that I had done right? where I wasn't good enough, where, you know, like I made the mistake of growing up and why didn't I talk to him more? And why didn't I try to save him from his depression? Because that was like a whole other animal that, you know, my, my, I got this package in the mail at the end, or this actually wasn't even that long ago. This was, I don't know, maybe two months ago. And it was my stepmom had, had sold their house and moved to be closer to her children, which I'm so glad that she did. And, and she found some of my dad's stuff and thought I should have it. And she mailed it to me. And, and I think in her haste, God bless her, she didn't put a return address and there was no note. And um, I was not expecting this package in the mail. And so I open up this package and it's all these pictures, many of which I had never seen before of me and my dad when I was little. And, and um, every card I had ever given him, every card I had ever given him growing up. And one of the things was a letter that one of his friends had written him. And it was that same friend that went and visited him that I mentioned. And it was, the letter was from 19, what was it? 93, when my dad had checked himself into treatment um, for his alcoholism and, and he'd gotten sober and stayed sober, but he was also severely depressed. And um, my friend, my dad's friend had, had basically like, written him this heartfelt letter talking about how he understands. And, and I started reading the letter and it was very intimate letter between these two friends, you know, and it felt a little bit voyeuristic, but at the same time, like I threw the letter across the counter and like, it was hot. Like I couldn't, it, it, I, I, and I, and I remember I asked you and I'm like, what could I have? Like, I felt this, massive sense of regret and despair having not been able to help him in his depression. And, and I, I, and that was a hard couple of weeks and just knowing how bad it was. I think I never knew how bad it was. And like one of our last conversations that we had when I went to go see him in June is he told me that his depression was bad. And, and, and I just was like, should I have done more? Should I have talked? What could I have done? And, and, you know, my friend Carrie says, she's like, I don't know, Andrea, maybe, maybe he didn't want you to know ever how bad it was because think about your own children, you know, and uh, like them being adult, like, would you want them to know? Would you want them to be the ones that saved you? And I'm like, no, I I wouldn't, I I would never want that burden of responsibility on my children. But it's like, at the same time, like I do. And I think that this is again, like my own daddy issues of, I, I always for so long, as soon as I grew up, felt responsible for my father's feelings. And it's, and again, it's like all this stuff gets kicked up and like getting, hearing stories about him, um, that I didn't know many of them are really great stories and many of them, not so great stories about how he was and how he was this imperfect human being. And it's sort of like, it's like someone threw up all over my fucking house. 
And I'm like, oh God, I got to clean it up. And, and, you know, and the smell never quite goes away. And you and, think you got it all. And then you and there's more the and there's more. <laughs> right. That's how, I don't know how I got, got down this tangent, but it just, it's like these things keep happening. And, and I, I've, I've gotten to the point now where it's like, okay, this is how it's going to go. And it, it's just the way that it works. And I think that the parent child relationship is one that I never realized was so incredibly complicated for many people, not for everyone, but for many people. That's right. Yeah. I mean, God, yes, for sure. And, you know, I mean, even thinking about that particular topic and kind of everything that we've shared today and talked about, what do you want people who are listening? What do you want them to know about grief? Um, I think that I think we've, we've mentioned some really good things about it. And I think that the thing that surprised me the most about grief is how lonely it is. Even if you have people that you can talk to, like I can, like I do, it's still a very lonely feeling. Yeah. Um, I think that's just the way grief is. Um, I think that grief never totally goes away. And I think that the thing I've learned through all of this is that, and I knew this on like a like a cognitive, like a conceptual basis. But like, now I know it in my bones is that when we are here on earth, that our relationships and connections with each other and with the people we care about, those are the most important things that we'll ever have throughout our entire lifetime, more yeah. so than anything that, or achievement that we could get to in our life. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. You know, and like what you were talking about with the loneliness, it's, it's very similar. You know, you, we're talking about extreme emotional pain, but it's so very similar to physical pain. Like if you had an egregious accident and you have to recover and like, you know, your entire leg is shattered. Right. Everybody can have a mammoth amount of sympathy for you, but you are the one who is sitting in that hospital bed trying to grapple with what's happening to your body. You know, that is exactly what grief is like. It's just emotional pain instead of physical pain. So even though people can empathize and check in on you, you are the one who has to sit has and wait through those waters. That's mm -hmm. right. And I think, I think what I would say to people listening is, is to not vote on your experience or judge your experience that there is no right or wrong way or rather, I would say a ton of right ways to, to process and handle things. But what I would highly advocate is to find your solace, whether that is with a therapist, with a grief group, with a, a spouse, with a best friend, somebody who is someone or body of group, body of people who, who can hold you through this. Mm -hmm. You could at least turn to in dark hours uh, and that you deserve that. Yeah. They absolutely deserve that. Everyone does. And you're not a burden. No. And anyone that thinks that you are, they're not the right person for you to share your story with. That's right. That's yeah. right. Thanks, oh, Deep breath. Deep breath. <laughs> Good times. <sighs> so this, this concludes our dead dad segment. I know, right? <laughs> Should I title it that? Dead dads. How do you deal with dead dads? <laughs> oh my god! I know my dad would think that was funny. <laughs> oh yeah, my dad too, for sure. And he'd be like, "Well, that's one way to put it." 
Oh, my dad. I miss him. Damn it. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing everything, G. I really, I think it's so important for people to see the humanity of what it, what it's really like to go through stuff like this, you know? And I think it's cool that I was able to go through this a decade ago and here's the shit that pissed me off of what people said. So I'm not going to say that to you, right? Tell me what you need, you know, I, know. And- I got really lucky in that. I mean, not, not that I don't, I don't think that, I think you would have handled it beautifully, uh, even if you didn't have a parent that passed away, but I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't have lucked out anymore. And, um, you know, I've had a couple of friends that have really just risen to the occasion. I mean, Courtney and and Kate came to my dad's service and they had never met him before. Um, and it just, I just was so incredibly lucky in that way. And, um, to have people hold me up and I just hope that it was helpful for people listening just to, just to hear what it's like. And for anyone that's still grieving, whether you lost someone a month ago or 20 years ago, that it's still okay to have pain. And I, and I, I, like you were saying, I hope that they can find the, the solace that they, that they need. And, um, and I hope this was helpful. Yeah. All right. So that's it. I'll see y'all next time. And until then I'll see you out in cyberspace. Bye. Bye guys.